Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike, and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple: stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. I don't think Kim has made that strategic decision to give up his nuclear weapons program. You know, I was hoping before the Singapore summit that maybe, just maybe, Kim is truly different from his father and grandfather in that regard. But I don't think he has made that strategic decision to give it up. Ever since Singapore summit, they have continually worked on their nuclear missile program. They have conducted dozens short-range missiles、uh, this year,、um, and each time, it of course improves their capability. So as we sit here,、um, North Korean threat has not gone away just because they don't test long-range missiles. They've been working on their program. Would you say it's gotten worse? Threat has gotten worse as they make these advances. It at least feels like it's not worse because it's not the missile test is not happening in front of our、right. eyes. These scary intercontinental、right. ballistic missile tests, but they've been working on it. So unless we can resolve the North Korean crisis, I, the, cri- the threat has not gone away at all. Sumi Terry is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank focusing on foreign policy here in Washington D.C. Sue, an expert on Korean issues, joined CSIS in 2017 after a long and distinguished career in intelligence, in policymaking, and in academia. She served as a senior analyst at the CIA and as the director for Korea, Japan, and Oceanic Affairs at the National Security Council. She is widely regarded as one of our country's leading experts on North Korea. Sue and I just sat down to catch up on all things Korea. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sue, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you back on the show. This is your third time with us, tying a record. You're actually competing with your colleague from CSIS, Chris Johnson. Oh, okay. um, For most on the podcast, but it's great to have you back. Great. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on the show to give our listeners an update on North Korea. There's a lot that's going on in the world from impeachment and elections here at home to tension with Iran and Turkey abroad. And North Korea's fallen off the front pages. There's not that much discussion about it at the moment. So I thought it important that at least we here on Intelligence Matters and our listeners not lose sight of what is an extraordinarily important issue. So that's what I'd love to do. And maybe the place to start, Sue, is to remind us kind of how we got from where we were at the end of the Obama administration to where we are today. How would you tell the arc of that story? Well, when President Trump first came into the office, well, President Obama first told President Trump that North Korea is going to be number one security issue. And it turned out to be true. In 2017, North Korea conducted uh, many tests, including three ICBM tests, intercontinental ballistic missile tests, which United States, from U.S.'s perspective, we used to always say that's the threshold uh, because now they have a missile that can reach New York or Washington. They also conducted nuclear tests. It was a hydrogen bomb test uh, with uh, that. It was a very powerful test. And so if you remember in 2017, we were pursuing, the Trump administration was pursuing what you call, what they called maximum pressure policy. And well, along with the fire and fury rhetoric and calling Kim and rocket men on a suicide mission and, and all of that. maximum pressure was largely sanctions. Largely sanctions. And, you know, to, to Trump administration's credit, I do think they got uh, countries like China to actually implement sanctions. And for a skeptic like myself and a lot of many Korea watchers, there was a genuine surprise that by fall of 2017, we had China implementing sanctions. Because in the previous administrations, China was a little bit lax, let's say, to in, in terms of implementing sanctions. So we were full on maximum pressure stage with North Korea in response to and the nuclear tests and missile tests. Do you think China was helpful in that situation because they were worried yes, about I, the tension on the peninsula? Absolutely. I, I do think, you know, China's favorite saying with the Korean peninsula is no war, no instability, no nukes, and in that order. And I think with maximum pressure, with this fire and fury rhetoric, China was concerned uh, about potential instability in the Korean Peninsula, potential conflict. If you remember, it was also a time when we were talking about potential preventive strike on North Korea, a bloody nose right. strategy, pursuing that strategy. The South Koreans were so alarmed about all of this. So that was 2017. And then all of a sudden, in 2018, we have Kim Jong-un's New Year editorial that sort of indicated maybe North Korea was uh, shifting to sort of the charm offensive phase. 
uh, because North Korea said, you know what, we're done with our testing. We're going to now try to focus on economic development. And then President Moon, Moon Jae-in of South Korea, played a pivotal role in terms of sort of saying, it's time for diplomacy, invited the North Koreans to participate in the Pyeongchang Olympics, Winter Olympics in South Korea. And President Trump responded to all this by saying, I'm going to meet with Kim Jong-un. Why do you think Kim Jong-un made that shift in that New Year's speech? Kim is very interesting. I mean, he's a very shrewd guy. He, 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 that move also caught many Korea watchers off guard because he was about 90%, 95% done with North Korea's nuclear program. He has demonstrated in ICBM capability because they have tested three times intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, he just conducted a, a hydrogen nuclear test. And I think he felt comfortable in terms of where they were in, in their nuclear missile program. And that he didn't felt the need to go all the way to, to show 100% capability in terms of being able to strike New York City with a nuclear weapon or Washington, D.C., right? The North Koreans had a little more to go in terms of showing their, that capability. Miniaturization capability, uh, I, I think most Korea watchers thought North Koreans were there, but they needed to do showcase a successful reentry capability. They, they had a couple more things, steps to do, but he stopped. He didn't need to go 100%. He said, this is good enough. I'm going to stop here. So I think it's a combination of getting North Korea's nuclear missile program to where he wanted it, and then sort of saying, I'm not going to push it further uh, because of all this uh, bloody nose talk that's coming out of Washington. So I think it's a combination of reasons that make him pivot to charm offensive, sending the North Korean athletes to the South Korean Olympics, and then proposing meeting with Trump. And President Trump, of course, said, I want to meet with Kim, which is a big shift because U.S. Mm -hmm. policy has been you know, it's not true that President Obama uh, you know, or, or President Bush, that they were so dying to meet with the North Korean leader. It was act active policy where previous U.S. presidents didn't want to give that kind of legitimacy to a North Korean leader by sitting down with them. So it's not true that, you know, the previous U.S. presidents, I think President Trump said, oh, you know, Kim called President Obama how many times? And it was, you know, begged Obama, begged President Obama, begged Kim Jong-un uh, to meet with Kim Jong-un. That's not true. Neither President Obama nor President Bush wanted to meet with a North Korean leader because it, that would be giving a, a legitimacy to that uh, to the leader. But President Trump had obviously didn't was not concerned about that, wanted to sit down with Kim. So then we had the Singapore summit, where historic Singapore summit, where President Trump met with Kim Jong-un. Uh, then we also had uh, Hanoi summit, which obviously didn't work out um, because North Koreans came in with such such an ask. What they ask for basically is almost all lifting of UNSC, United Nations Security Council sanctions that's placed on, on North Korea. And then they met again briefly at the DMC in the Korean Peninsula, President Trump, uh, the, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And then... Just recently, uh, the working level talks were held in Stockholm. Um, that fell apart. So basically, uh, since Singapore summit, despite Singapore declaration, despite North Koreans saying they would work towards the uh, peace on the Korean Peninsula and denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, despite President Trump saying that they, you know, right after Singapore summit that North Korean threat is over, we, have, we are at a stalemate. Uh, 
Uh, North Korean threat is not over. They have not taken a single step towards denuclearization, and that's where we are. Let me ask a question about President Clinton, because at the end of the second Clinton administration, President Clinton had signals his willingness to go to North Korea. It didn't happen at the end of the day, but he had signals his willingness to go. How do you think about that compared to what President Trump did? Well, that's the order is very important there because President Clinton signaled uh, his willingness to go to North Korea because we had 1994 agreed framework. We had a bilateral agreement with North Korea. And that was towards the end of the administration that he was thinking about going. And of course, he sent a Secretary of State, former Secretary of State, uh, Madeleine Albright, to Pyongyang. And it, it just that they ran out of time. But there was a deal in place. And at the time, the U.S. did not know that North Koreans were actually sort of cheating on that agreed framework right. agreement. Uh, at the time, I don't think uh, President Clinton knew that. So that his willingness to visit came at the end of that whole, there was a negotiation, there was an agreement, it's many years later. Whereas in President Trump, nothing has worked out, right? It, there was no working level talks that were held where there was an agreement. Uh, President Trump thought he could just sit down with this, only if he could just sit down with Kim Jong-un and they could somehow hammer out a deal. So it's sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a very backward approach. So Sue, we're at a stalemate. What's the underlying problem? What's the underlying dynamic that doesn't allow any sort of serious negotiation to go forward? Most fundamentally, I don't think Kim has made that strategic decision to give up his nuclear weapons program. I don't think he... I think it's pretty clear now, if it wasn't clear, you know, I was hoping before the Singapore summit that maybe, just maybe, Kim is truly different from his father and grandfather in that regard. But I don't think he has made that strategic decision to give it up. Then there's actual problem of sequencing. So even if, if you give him that remotest possibility, which I don't think he has made that strategic decision, but even if you allow yourself to say, okay, maybe Kim has made that decision. He just doesn't want to give up everything up front. We're not asking for that. But there's a sequencing problem because what the North Koreans are saying is that we have to, you, United States have to lift most of the sanctions um, before they can take first step towards denuclearization. And what, obviously what the United States is saying, sanctions is that sanctions is the only leverage, only real leverage that we have. And if we lift most of the sanctions, why would Kim have any incentive to give it up? So I think there's a sequencing problem. There's also distrust with each other. North Koreans also don't trust us because they have experience with, with, with the Clinton years. There was a great framework. Clinton almost went to, Bill Clinton almost went to Pyongyang. Time ran up. President Bush came in, sort of reversed the policy. So they kind of point to that. And then, and then they point to U.S. being a democracy and we have a change of administrations and we're not going to be actually keep our word that they can really trust us. And of course, from the U.S.'s perspective, we cannot trust North Korea. Right. We have a long history of dealing with North Koreans. We had many agreements with North Korea, right? We had 1994 agreed framework. And during the Bush years, we had the whole six-party talks. And so we had 2005 agreement, 2007, we had a joint statement. And, and every single time, everything fell apart over verification. So even after there was an agreement. So there was a fundamental distrust. There was a sequencing issue. And at the core... I don't think North Korea is interested in giving up nuclear weapons. So he hasn't made up his mind to do that. Do you think he's open to the idea? Do you think he debates it in his mind? Or is this no way, no how? Or is there more going on here, do you think? Is he actually thinking about it? I know that's a really tough question. I think that's a very tough question. And 
really serious career scholars uh, can debate this, and we do debate. From uh, f- f- uh, this is my personal assessment. I don't think Kim will do that. Uh, I-, I don't think he has that made up mind, and I I don't see why he would do that. North Korea is a nuclear weapons power. North Korea is not Libya. What Libya was, it was not Afghanistan. It's, it's, it's not. North Korea has up to 60 nuclear warheads. They have intercontinental ballistic missiles. They have one. They, they believe nuclear weapons is a true deterrent, one and only deterrent against the United States. And we, everybody knows North Koreans want regime survival. And North nuclear weapons is a deterrent against the United States and United, a potential threat to North Korea. So why would you give it up? Some people point to the fact that Kim Jong-un is a young man, that he actually wants to develop North Korea economically. I buy that. Of course he does. But from North Korean perspective, they can have nuclear weapons and they, they can develop their country. A little bit. So, so it's eating his cake or having it or is it eating mm-hmm. his cake? What's the phrase? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's, he can do both. Why does he have to give up nuclear weapons? So I really have a hard time uh, believing that North Korea will ever give up nuclear weapons. So we've had this stalemate and they haven't tested any more nuclear weapons or they haven't tested any more ICBMs. They've done some tests of shorter range missiles, but are they still advancing in their capabilities on the nuclear weapon side and the the ICBM side during the stalemate or not? Yes, they have been working ever since Singapore summit. They have continually worked on their nuclear missile program. They've done, they've conducted dozens short range missiles uh, this year. Um, and each time, it, of course, improves their capability. They're assessing. They've done a submarine launch, uh, base launch uh, missile uh, just recently, um, last month. So there's no indication that they have halted or they have stopped. They, in fact, they've been working on their program. So as we sit here, um, North Korean threat has not gone away just because they don't t- test long-range missiles. They've been working on their program. Would you say it's gotten worse? The threat has gotten worse as they make these advances? Is that too strong? Well, I'm not sure if it's necessarily worse, but it certainly has improved. I mean, I, I would say it's worse because they, they're, they're improving their right. missile program. It would it at least feels like it's not worse because it's not the missile test is not happening in front of our right. eyes, these scary intercontinental right. ballistic missile tests. But they've been working on it. So unless we can resolve the North Korean crisis, I, the, the threat has not gone away at all. I guess the one thing we have achieved here is a reduction in the tension that we saw very early in the Trump administration, right? With Kim doing the rapid tests and Trump doing the fire and fury. So that has gone away. How important is that? I do think it's important that we have some reduction of threat and sense, right? Because we was very those were anxiety filled days for right. Korea watchers like myself in twenty seventeen. And that whole talk of preventive war, bloody nose, it's just very not helpful, not only in dealing with North Korea, but with our allies like South Korea. South Korea was very unnerved by that kind of talk, preventive war talk. So I do think that's good that we're not talking about war on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so that is good. But as we just talked about the fact of the matter is North Korea's missile capability and nuclear capability is there. Their threat is there. They're improving on that capability. So it's not time for us to sit here and relax and think, you know, everything is fine just because North Korea is not testing right. ICBMs. What about the sanctions? What's the status of the sanctions? Have they started to erode from where they were at the peak? Are they pretty much the same? How do you think about that? Sanctions are definitely eroding, not because we have lifted any of the sanctions, but because 
What's so important about sanctions that we get countries like China and Russia to implement sanctions? That's why I said earlier that in 2017, in the fall, we got China to actually implement sanctions. Now, in the aftermath of Trump meeting with Kim, President Trump meeting with Kim, Xi Jinping has also met with Kim four times now. Their actual relationship back on track, China and North Korea, until President met with Kim or made a decision to meet with Kim, Xi Jinping has never met with Kim Jong-un since Kim Jong-un came into power. Xi Jinping has met with South Korean leader, former President Park Geun-hye and Moon Jae-in and many times, but not with Kim Jong-un. Actually, Xi Jinping didn't even like Kim mm. because Kim you know, killed Chang Sung-tae, the second mm. most powerful man in North Korea, his uncle who had, was an interlocutor with the Chinese, uh, assassinated Kim Jong-nam, his half-brother, who was under the protection of China. All these missile and nuclear tests. Chinese were very unhappy with that. But he, now they're back into the picture, in the picture, they, she met with Kim, he, Xi Jinping hosted Kim Jong-un and his wife and even visited Pyongyang. So now China is loosening in the implementation of sanctions. So it's not a good stage because now that's giving a breathing space to North Korea. And so if we want to use sanctions as leverage, it's not a good news for the United States and the international community when sanctions are not implemented on the ground and you're giving a breathing space to the North Koreans. Right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sumi Terry. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, Sue, what do you expect to happen between the United States and North Korea between now and our election? So I think there are two scenarios, and both scenarios are bad for United States. One scenario is that there would be uh, an interim deal, that President Trump decides that he needs a foreign policy success story. I mean, he did, after all, say the North Korean threat was no longer after the Singapore summit. So there is a deal. Uh, but what North Koreans are asking for is massive sanctions relief. So I don't believe we're going to have a deal unless we're ready to give some big sanctions relief. And in return, we'll get, uh, you know, a maybe I should put just a freeze uh, of testing, continued testing, and they'll put up Yongbyon nuclear plant, um, which they've closed before. Um, so there might be an interim deal of some sort, which I don't believe necessarily that's uh, moving towards denuclearization. It just, it's sort of a freeze. Uh, in order to get that deal, we'd have to give them pretty much everything they wanted. Right, which is massive sanctions relief, which is what they asked for even in Hanoi, right. and that's why it fell apart. Or... We don't do that. There is no interim deal. Kim Jong-un says the timeline is until the end of the year. The end of the year clock runs out. There is no deal. Come January, there's a new editorial. And I'm not sure if North Koreans will necessarily sort of revert back to the ICBM test and nuke test because they know that's sort of the red line for President Trump. But there are many things that they can do that's just short of that threshold, uh, such as medium-range missile tests over Japan or even a satellite launch. Satellite launch is very interesting because it uses ballistic missile technology. So it's really an ICBM test, but still North Koreans can at least insist that this is different, that it's a satellite launch. Maybe even President Trump might say, listen, this is, this is satellite launch and this, you know, other countries can do this. Um, I think either we have a deal or we return to provocations. 
And then... And, and what's the point of the provocations if you're North Korea? What are you trying to achieve with the provocations? You are continually dialing up pressure, right? So if you do a medium-range test over Japan, if you do a satellite launch, they are headed towards that nuke test. And let's say, now this is the election year, let's say we're now talking March, April of next year, uh, they're trying to dial up the pressure for ESO, either the U.S. come in and say, mm-hmm. okay, fine, we'll give you almost everything you want. Get to that want, interim deal you talked or about. Or they just run out the clock, wait for the election, see if President Trump gets reelected, and then maybe they will deal with it then, or a new uh, president uh, in, the, in the U.S. And then, of course, the long-term goal for North Korea, and I still think this is a long-term goal, and this is what they're seeking, is to gain international acceptance of North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. They want... They want to be Pakistan, right, for the international community to accept North Korea as a responsible nuclear weapons power. Why is that a bad thing at the end of the day? Why should we worry about that? Why should it be our policy not to let that happen? Well, first of all, I mean, it's just the message is sending to all other countries, the rogue countries out there like Iran and others that are watching um, that all you have to do is just keep at it and we'll just accept it. Um, Secondly, I think one of the biggest concerns is a regional proliferation. Uh, mm. because once we accept North Korea as nuclear weapons power, what is South Korea going to do? South Korea is already now talking about, there are conservative circles out of South Korea right now talking about potentially developing their own nuclear weapons or at least bringing tactical nuclear weapons back. And then Japan, you know, with Prime Minister Abe has been trying to work on sort of trying to normalize Japan in terms of their self-defense forces to having a normal military. What would Japan do? Would Japan possibly go nuclear? So we're, we're worried about regional proliferation and of course, we're also worried about global proliferation in addition to uh, this, this wrong message we're sending to the rest of the world and the rogue nations. Can you envision a deal that would be acceptable to both sides? I can envision a deal if we have a different mindset. So if we say to ourselves um, that let's talk about arms control because we're never going to get to denuclearization. So let's get realistic. And there are many arms control watch, uh, scholars and experts who say, you know, it, this is about threat reduction. Mm-hmm. So if we can't get to a deal where uh, they freeze uh, their fissile material production, they freeze all uh, program, um, and that can be verified that they are doing so, they are abiding by that, then I can see some sort of a deal uh, that's possible. If, if you get into the mindset that we, that's okay. Um, but that's a debate. Is that okay or is it not okay? Right. Because that's really accepting North that's Korea accepting as, them, right? as nuclear right. weapons power. And I, I failed to mention, uh, beyond regional proliferation, another concern about really accepting North Korea as nuclear weapons power is that there is a concern that their behavior, North Korean behavior, is not necessarily going to get better uh, once they are fully accepted as a nuclear weapons power, but that their behavior can get even more aggressive. Because now they think they have that deterrent against the United States. And so, meaning sort of border clashes that used to occur with South Korea could still occur. All the asymmetrical warfare like cyber and that can all continue. So it's not like North Korea's threat is going to go away or provocations are going to go away just because we accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. In fact, they could get more confident in, in terms of feeling like they can and continue on with provocations. Do you think North Korea still envisions reunification of the peninsula on their terms? It's a very difficult question um, because on one hand, uh, I do think the North Koreans, 
cannot give up ultimately on unification idea of unification on its own terms because to live with a richer, freer, democratic rival state, which is what North Korea is doing right now. South Korea is a rival state. They're just right there for, for everyone to see and they can, you know, it's, it's a freer, richer rival state. And ultimately, North Koreans, of course, worried about German-style unification, right? Um, absorb unification by absorption. This is their ultimate fear. So I don't think they can give it up. Now, the question, though, is, is Kim Jong-un aware of how realistic can, is that scenario? I mean, South Korea is a thriving democracy. You saw what, what, what they did as a public. Candlelight visuals ousted their last president. Right. Um, it, it's a thriving democracy. Can this kind of democratic nation be really now under, uh, there'll be okay if we're to be just completely unified on, by North Korea on its own terms? But as a goal, can North Korea give mm. that, afford to give up, give up that goal? I, you know, I don't think so. So my answer would be, I don't think North Korea gave it up as a goal. Just as a practical matter, I'm not sure if it's so realistic. So let me ask several broader questions about North Korea, and these will be kind of random. How do you think about Kim Jong-un's domestic political position? I think he has consolidated power and his domestic position is strong, although I would think that long-term picture domestically, um, I don't think it's so stable. Just, it's just an inherently unstable system. Uh, the reason is, uh, for example, uh, information that you know, North Korea controls its own pu- public with complete information blockade um, uh, and ideological indoctrination. But information is seeping into North Korea more and more uh, through China-North Korea border, and Kim cannot completely stop that. Private markets are thriving, black markets. Kim cannot stop that. This is the only way people are able to live, survive. So he cannot stop that. And even the elites too, even though they support him because Kim purged almost anybody who can be a a rival to him, uh, I would think the long-term elites will be worried about their future because of so many purges um, and very ruthless way in which Kim has consolidated power. So I would say, yes, he has consolidated power right now. No, we don't see any kind of potential challenger, challenger to Kim because Kim got rid of them. Right. Um, but overall, long-term stability picture is still not a great one. So I remember, I, as you know, I worked on North Korea a long, 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 long time ago. I don't want to say how long ago, but <laughs> even at that time, we were saying, you know, this, this system can't survive forever. But boy, it's hung on. Yes, right, I, so. I often describe it as like a coma patient, right? You heard that phrase yes. before. It's like a coma patient. Like it's sort of, you can go any day or you can just go on another 50 years. <laughs> right, right. Let me ask about the human rights situation in North Korea, which we don't hear much about, doesn't get discussed. Certainly the United States has not made it kind of issue that we used to make it. Has it gotten any better? Has it gotten worse? Is it roughly the same as it's been? How do you think about that? I don't think it has gotten any better. Uh, and I am, so, this is sort of the, thing that I regret about this as a policy, I, did, I do think when President Trump first came into office in 2017, he did at least appear that he, he cared about North Korea's human rights issue. The State of the Union address, he brought Otto Warmbier's family, 
uh, to State of Union address. He invited a North Korean defector. Uh, he hosted several North Korean defectors, meetings with North Korean defectors. When he went to South Korea, gave this big speech in front of the National Assembly. He addressed North Korean human rights. But all of that sort of got thrown out right. um, along with just because he wanted to, you know, now not annoy Kim. Uh, you know, human rights situation have not gotten better. United Nations Commission of Inquiry came out with 400-page report several years ago that really details all the human rights violations that's going on in North Korea, which is an excellent report, um, it says there's no, no parallel in contemporary history, the human rights violations that's going on in North Korea, except to Nazi Germany. Mm. So that's how bad it is. They call what's happening in North Korea a crime against humanity. Mm. And they list Kim Jong-un by name as somebody who perpetuates crime against humanity. So I was, and we see no indication that North Korea has not, has changed how it closed any of the prison, political prison camps that keeps some 120,000 political prisoners, which is, that's a completely separate system. That's not a regular, it's not, there's a regular criminal penal system and then there's political prisons where they keep these uh, dissidents or anybody who dare to criticize Kim. So, I do think uh, it's a very sad situation. And of course, we just don't focus enough on it. Uh, We don't prioritize enough on human rights in North Korea. So, Sue, let me finish up here by asking you two final questions. The first is about the health of the U.S. relationship with South Korea. Seems to be be fraying a bit. Is that your sense? Yes, it's definitely fraying because... U.S. and South Korea right now are engaged in burden-sharing negotiation. Uh, And, of course, President Trump came up with uh, this figure of $5 billion that he's asking for South Koreans to pay, which is five times the money that they are paying. Um, President Trump just has said over and over for many, you know, many times for many years. So this is something that he actually believes in, which is that, uh, you know, the U.S. is take, getting taken advantage by the, our allies. A country like South Korea is rich. They need to be paying more. So it's a particularly bad time. And of course, uh, with Korea-Japan relationship fraying, um, U.S. does not like that, uh, what's happening with South Korea and Japan. Um, and so it's, it's, I think this is a particularly difficult period. I would say the South Korean public does support alliance. You know, when you see the polls, they really do broadly support the alliance. They support U.S. presence in South Korea. But I think right now, this particular moment, uh, you know, they feel like they're being extorted uh, with this ask of $5 billion for South Korea. And are there today. costs to us in the fraying of the relationship? Of course, because I do think, uh, you know, uh, South Korea is one of the closest allies in the region. Our troops are in South Korea also not only to deter North Korea, right? This is also to protect Japan. It's our forward presence. It has also to do with uh, dealing with China. Um, In South Korea, you know, and U.S. stood side by side for over 70 plus years, keeping peace, not only on the Korean Peninsula, but in the entire Northeast Asian region. South Korea is a very important ally, and we are there in South Korea, not only for South Korea, but we have interests in the region. So um, I do think just just really rhetorically and hurting just by demanding that they pay so much more, um, this is really hurting even the public perception of the alliance right now. Does the health of the relationship have any political impact in South Korea, on South Korean politics? So South Korean politics is interesting right now. There's a National Assembly election that's coming up in April. Yes, I mean, normally, if, 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 these, if the public side is the Moon Jae-in administration's fault, 
that the alliance is fraying, it would actually cost the Moon Jae-in administration politically. But because right now the reason is, you know, they see us, the United mm-hmm. States, asking for $5 billion as so unreasonable, mm-hmm. that's not what's going to be hurting the Moon administration gotcha. from the public's perspective. Gotcha. So, Sue, the second question I had was, and you mentioned it already, the state of the relationship between Japan and South Korea. What's, what's the story there? It's the worst that it has ever been uh, in terms of Korea-Japan relationship. I think most people are su- surprised when they hear it, when, when, when they don't, they're not aware of the Korea-Japan historically, their relationship between the two countries. They are two allies of the United States. They are mature liberal democracies, yet historically their relationship had always up and downs ever since Japan colonized Korea from 1910 to 1945. And even though there was a normalization agreement in 1965, there's, it was, it's just unsettled or over historical grievances, over issues like comfort women, uh, over issues, you know, over, you know, the South Koreans feeling like the Japanese have not uh, apologized enough and so on. But the recent spate of uh, tension, recent tension is basically what happened was since the when Moon administration came in, uh, he decided to go scrap the deal that, that took place between former South Korean President Park geun and Japan uh, on comfort woman deal. And Moon administration sort of said, no, that we're not going to abide by that agreement. And then... And just a reminder, the comfort woman issue is... The sex slaves issue that the Japanese... You, Japanese basically forced uh, women uh, in from many countries, but including South Korea, to basically work as sex slaves during the, the war. For Japanese soldiers. For the Japanese soldiers. Um there's a disagreement uh, on that issue, how they how that's perceived. So from South Korea's perspective, uh, there was also, after the, after going back on the comfort woman deal, there was a South Korean Supreme Court decision that said um, they're making, forcing Japanese companies to basically pay for wartime labor of, uh, of South Koreans. The South Koreans can individually sue the Japanese. And there was just a mm. straw, just to, it, there was a law straw for the Japanese. Mm. So they took, they retaliated economically by taking South Korea off the whitelist. And, and then South Korea retaliated by taking Japan off the whitelist. And right now, there is what you call an internal sharing deal between Japan and South Korea, uh, called Jisomia. And that is between really, that helps U.S., South Korea, Japan work together in terms of intelligence sharing. It's very important um, because well, it helps us deal with China. It helps deal with North Korea. And that is about to expire on November 22nd. And so that that has caused all kinds of tension too. So it's just, it's just exacerbating. Uh, it's, it's been coming for the last several years. But I would say today... Korea-Japan relationship is at its worst. And should we, the United States, be doing something to help bring these two allies back together that we're not doing? Or are we doing what we should be doing here? I think there's we can do more. Um, in, the, in, in the previous administration, Korea-Japan relationship always had up and down. But the more U.S. gets engaged, uh, it, it, there are periods when they are, it's better. Uh, right. So last under the Obama administration, Tony Blinken and others sort of forced these. So the Koreans and the Japanese sit down regularly and talk to each other. So I do think the U.S. must be engaged. These are two closest allies, friends of the United States. It's critical that the trilateral relationship 
uh, is a good one. And it just hurts our interest to see these two allies at each other's throat like this. It's, it's very sad to see, and I hope we can find a way out of this. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. It is always good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome. That was Sumi Terry. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.